0: Welcome to the Mosavar-Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. Uh, ladies and
1: gentlemen, let's get started. Hey, uh, I'm John Ruggie. Uh, I teach here, but... Um, haven't met many of you because I'm on to leave this semester, and so I try to stay I'm out of uh, circulation while I do research and writing for a change. Uh, but here in the spring, teaching uh, with Jane Nelson, a course on corporate responsibility. I look forward to seeing some of you uh, then. Today, we're very privileged to have with us Karen Huon from the uh, Copenhagen Business School. Um, Erin is one of the world's leading scholars of business and human rights. She's a lawyer. She's a sociolinguist. Um, She's a practitioner. Uh, She uh, uh, participates in the complaint mechanism um, under the OECD. Um, Each member country has a complaints mechanism against multinational corporations uh, in their domestic or overseas activities. But that must be an easy job, because Danish companies never do anything bad. Like that. <laughs> um, today, um, I'm not even gonna read that title because it'll take too long, um, but it's Watch Your Words, and it's about um, a socio-legal um, approach to understanding uh, uh, soft regulation and how soft regulation at global level um, sometimes has bite. That work? Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, John. Is this on my way? Yeah. Sure. Thank you very much, John. Thank you very much also. Thank you for the introduction, and thank you also very much for kindly hosting me here for uh, for uh, around two months of um, uh, sabbatical. Uh, here at at Harvard, I feel very privileged um, to be here. It's, it's a very inspirational environment. Uh, walking around, being here, uh, the facilities, everything. Uh, so just for those of you who are here on an everyday basis, I uh, just want to to maybe remind you to think about how privileged mm-hmm. you actually are. Um, uh, to me, actually, it's 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 it's. It's very interesting to see that. Um, but anyway, yes, uh, this title is always a challenge to come up with a good title, so, um, and I tend to make them too long, uh, which I think John very sort of uh, <laughs> cleverly indicated. So let's get going what this is actually about. Um, I do want to, however, take uh, your sort of, draw your attention to the fact that this is a social legal presentation. I'll be saying much more about what I mean by social legal. Uh, but it basically means that it's more socially legal take is, it means that there's more focus on the way the law and legal regulation and 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 uh, policy can be made to work in an instrumental way to shape conduct hopefully before it causes harm than to focus very much on enforcement and sanctions after harm has been caused that's not the right one I want to say first a little bit about um, where I'm from. Um, Copenhagen Business School is um, a self-standing, standalone university in Copenhagen. So it's not part of the University of Copenhagen. I just mentioned it because sometimes people get very confused when they look for somebody from uh, Copenhagen Business School because they start looking at uh, the University of Copenhagen. The University of Copenhagen has um, a law school, but it doesn't have a business school. Uh, so we're a fairly large university, actually, uh, at least by, by Danish standards. We're one of the larger ones, there are f- five in total, uh, and we're among the largest ones. We have <coughs> business schools are business schools, of course, so they like to have all these nice accreditations, and I'm not going to mention them, but I just put them up there because it is important for Copenhagen Business School or CBS to show that we're part of a sort of relatively nice um, league of business schools. I think the most important thing for these purposes is that actually um, that, that CBS, this is on the, the, the red part on the right, The CBS has an elaborate business and society strategy. And CBS has been cultivating research and teaching in various sustainability issues for the past around two decades. So apart from all the conventional business school issues, finance and economics and what have you... Um, Across the various departments at CBS, there are a lot of people who work on sustainability and we regard sustainability not just as environmental sustainability, but generally social, societal sustainability. And so the foundation of this is really to consider uh, the role of business and the public sector in shaping society uh, and also how business practices and processes are shaped by society. Um, and it, this translates into an embracement of multi and this interdisciplinarity as a fundamental principle for this uh, business and society uh, research and teaching, and that is something that, uh, to me, has been um, a really interesting frame for work doing research on business and human rights. This, 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 this. this this endorsement of interdisciplinary approaches as something you can work with and you can integrate it, you can apply it actively. You don't actually need to argue your case very carefully. When you go outside of your own field, uh, of course, you have to respect that other fields have their own methodologies. Whatever you need to respect that, you can work with colleagues to understand it better. (coughs) Sorry. But applying different... Uh, disciplines and combining them together is something that we use very actively to get new insights. Um, And you're going to see from what I present that this is, I think, uh, something that can really help us understand how we can work with various issues of business and society or public regulation to implement public policy goals, also where companies are involved, or other uh, societal stakeholders. Because by going outside of our own fields, we get new insights that we might not otherwise have had. So, what I want to share with you here, just a brief overview, I want to share with some background and, and introduce you to some coincidences that um, have been shaping for, for my work on business and human rights and, and also my curiosity. And also because I think from a social science perspective, it's interesting to remember that coincidences can be quite uh, useful. And, and they can be very happy coincidences sometimes. Perhaps in, in science, we <coughs> have to think about the natural sciences as areas where coincidences sometimes generate results, but they can be just as useful in the social sciences context. Um, then I want to say something about my take to law, law as science, I would see it as basically a, 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 a science of institutional organization of norms of conduct. I want to say something about the method that I used for this analysis of which, that I'm going to share with you with the main results want to uh, share some empirical za- examples and then some, some, some outlooks on how we can use this insi- these insights on how communication, how the words we use, how the arguments that are put together by regulators and other stakeholders involved in and regulation can be used to shape uh, the outcome of regulation and it's uptake, but it can also be used actually for the, uh, to, to, to halt it. Um, so there are probably benefits and disadvantages in this. Uh, so, in terms of the background, um, going back to the, uh, the 1990s, I worked in the, as a sort of a, a newly graduated international lawyer in the Danish Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, I was um, employed as a consultant in the internal consultancy uh, department of the development branch of the ministry, and I was charged as the only person there with addressing human rights and governance in international development projects. This was before anyone talked about business and human rights. It just so happened that what I did then, which we refer to as mainstreaming, today would probably have been referred to as business and human rights, or so the considering uh, and addressing the potential adverse impacts of business uh, in regard to uh, society and managing those impacts. But as a different activity, I was asked to go to Geneva to spend a month sort of helping filling the Danish seat during the one of the 90s annual meetings of the uh, UN Human Rights Commission, because Denmark wanted to have a seat on of the, of the commission. And in order to be seen as quantified, it was very imp- important during the one month that the commission met to be seen as very, very actively participating. So everyone in the EMFA who had anything to do with human rights was told, go and sit there in in the seat, because in the the way these UN systems work, there is a front seat for the ambassador, but the the ambassador has lots of other things to do, and then a couple of back seats. And the idea was to have all of these seats to be seen to be very actively filled. So I spent about a month sitting in this uh, actually quite dark room, uh, which has been redone later on with some nice stuff in the ceiling, but it's it's still a very dark room in this otherwise very beautiful building with lovely views of the Alps and the Lake Geneva. Just trying to look very busy for the Danish government, but the point there was that what I realised was that the politics of, of, of human rights, international human rights lawmaking, is really not very much about human rights. It's really about a whole lot of other political interests. It's really a trade. It's a bargaining situation. One government will say, if you vote for our our, our resolution on this, we will vote for your resolution on that. If you have a political issue with that, well, we will support you if you support us in this other regard. So I, here was, was I as a newly graduated international human rights lawyer, passionate about human rights, thinking that everyone else working with international human rights were equally passionate. And I found that if you look at the politics, that's not the, the way it works. It's about that people can be passionate, but they're often passionate much more about something that is in the interest of whatever the task in government wants not necessarily about human rights. And to me, this was really important because it's one of the reasons why when I started following the processes that were launched a few years later by the UN and by the EU and also by some national governments to try to shape business conduct, to be more socially responsible in particular in getting businesses to take responsibility for the impacts on human rights. Mm -hmm. And especially looking at the international regulatory aspects it became clear to me how just going for the sort of the substantive human rights uh, aspects in a a text doesn't necessarily change anything. And also if you really want to get those substantive results in combat, you need to think about this negotiation process. Um, And that's again where these sort of the words and the arguments come in. Because as in any other kind of context, if you want results out of what you do, you need to think very carefully about your arguments. And international law is no different, whether we talk about hard or soft law. Um, so this sort of spurred my curiosity about what was going on in inter- terms of international lawmaking. And then I was further s- sort of uh, interested, uh, became more interested in it when I, I found that there was, at least in the European context, there was strong assistance both in, in research and in practice and, and also in, in policy communication, especially on the part of the EU, on CSR, so corporate social responsibility, being non-law or being being voluntary. And there was a connection, like an implicit connection that if it's voluntary, it's also detached from law. But what I found, again with my human rights background was that if you go and ask the man on the street or you look at, 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 at what civil society organizations are doing, they're certainly expecting companies to actually observe international law standards. So these may be monetary, they may be monetary companies, but they're definitely there and they're very clearly set up. So there seemed to be a disconnect here. Um, and this came out very clearly in an EU, um, a couple of, of, of EU uh, papers from the early 2000s. Then what I also noticed that was in, an, in, a, in another communication, an EU communication is like a policy paper, with a bit of a soft law status. The EU Commission often uses communications when they really want to do something to implement public policy, but they haven't really got regulatory powers. So sort of an in-between thing that they sometimes use to to, to, to try to make an impact uh, a little bit beyond maybe their, their actual powers. Um, and what I found was the EU 2006 communication, they, it, it consisted of two parts. One was the, um, the actual text of the communication, main document, which was sort of, Worded, um, phrased in conventional EU language, clearly aggressive groups. Then there was the an annex which was basically saying the same thing, but it was saying the same thing in a completely different language. The annex was about setting up um, a new initiative for the EU to again um, strengthen or stimulate uh, the way businesses work with their uh, impact on society. And this was done through something they referred to as a CSI alliance. And this CSI alliance was a group of different companies, especially companies seem to be leading in terms of corporate social responsibility. And it was also an effort to relaunch something that had failed a few years earlier, where the EU wanted to develop really its own very advanced code of conduct on um, for multinationals in their overseas operations. And where businesses had 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 somehow engaged with the managed to engage with the process in a way so that nothing came up. So the EU wanted to relaunch that process. And it, 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 there was something in there, in the difference between the language in the main document and the annex, where the annex was clearly addressed to businesses and the main document clearly addressed to governments, that made me think there is something about the way that they're now starting to use the words that they use. They want to do something else than they did before. And then another coincidence was that I had um, a, a lunch conversation with a, with a former colleague um, who, was, who got, got me thinking about systems thinking and also the legal takes, social legal takes on systems thinking, something that goes back to the 70s. I must admit, I'd never heard about it before. She was uh, somewhat older than me. But I thought this was a little bit interesting, thinking about the sort of instrumental re- way of using law to, to, break, uh, to change conduct. And then, uh, a few few weeks later, I, I paid a, a visit to the university library, at the university where I was then, and I happened to stand in front of a series of books by this particular person whom she mentioned, somebody called Gunther Teuchner, a German, uh, and I thought, okay, now this is the time to start reading about this. And I pulled down these books and I spent about a year reading something that initially did make, made no sense to me whatsoever but at the time when I was in a fortunate situation of not having very extensive teaching obligations, so I had the time to actually spend a year just reading something that didn't make sense, and gradually out of this chaos came order, And I started to understand what they were actually trying to say, and I'll get back to that. So, um, but these were really a series of coincidences. And if it hadn't been for those, I think I wouldn't have been able to put these different bits and pieces together. And then well, something else might have come out, or maybe nothing. Um, but finally, also, of course, being in inter- this interdisciplinary social science research environment that I'm in, um, and, and working with colleagues who <coughs> work on discourse analysis and communication, is both a challenge and, and an inspiration. But in the European context, usually lawyers work in law schools that are not, don't have a very interdisciplinary approach, and right? especially not within the civil law countries. So, so I think I feel my, I, I see myself to be very fortunate in that sense because I get a lot of inspiration through the challenges also of working for people with people who see things completely different. So, what do I mean when I talk about law and science? I think first of all, it's often important to think about what do we mean by law um, in English. Different uh, challenges to this, and in Danish, for example, my language, or in French, but if we, Sometimes, when I teach, I teach a lot to international students, and I ask them to think, say what they mean by law. And so, just to give a couple of examples, we have law in the abstract, like we can talk about the law, what the law says or does, whatever. We can talk about specific laws, like a statute. And then we can talk about law as science, or law as an institution, like politics or the media, whatever. And the the trick with law is we're actually using the same word for a whole lot of different meanings. And this can be very confusing. And what it does is, and it also often I think confuses our perception of what law can actually do as a science, because law as a science is not the same as a law as statutes, or law as a science is not the same as law as politics, (coughs) just like we wouldn't say that political science and politics are necessarily the same thing, or communication science and the media are necessarily the same things. So there are also some other important differences when we work with, with global issues. Are we, are we based in a common law, a civil law um, a culture? Even if you're not a lawyer by training, the way that you grow up thinking about what the law is and does is really shaped by whether you're used to thinking about um, judgments as precedents, for example, and whether you're used to thinking about uh, the, the role of enforcement as really, really key to whether law has meaning or not. Um, or whether you're not, and in this, I find that my experience is there's a really, really big difference between people who were raised and grew up in common law countries like the US, the UK, many of the former British colonies, <coughs> common law countries, and or people who were raised and grew up in civil law <coughs> countries like most of continental Europe, some um, African and Latin, Latin American countries, many of the Asian countries, and also most of the socialist countries. There's a really, really big difference then there's also the issue of what is your like your deep legal culture? It, uh, are you born and raised in a, in a culture that has like an individualistic or collectivistic take on on what are rights, for example? Are rights just for yourself? Claims that you make you can make on everything else? Or to what extent should you, should your claim to rights be part of also your um, contributing to the larger good? What about the perception of conflicts? In some countries some countries, some societies are known to be ridiculous. Other societies In other societies, if you create a conflict, you're really off to a bad start. If you create, once you create a conflict, like many of the Asian societies, once you create a conflict, you're already lost. This is a really big issue also, in the way that we work the law, the way we, we work with these potential conflicts about business impact on society and how we solve. Then there is the issue of also whether you're actually law trained or non-law trained. And what I find when I teach and also when I speak to my colleagues, is that I often, often find people with a law background actually more open to law being meaningful, laws also being meaningful, or international law being meaningful, even if it's not hard, even if it's not binding, and even if it's not enforceable. Whereas I have to admit that I have a really tall audience, especially some of my students who, um, who, who, who follow a specialization which is like political science specialization. When I teach this <coughs> and human rights to them, they, they meet with an expectation that human rights interna- and international law is really meaningless because it's soft law and it's non-enforceable. So I have to try to convince them that it doesn't have <coughs> to be like that. Um, that if we go and look sort of um, at international law, except for international economic law, international law is actually generally not enforceable in the course of law. Sometimes at the regional level it is, but at the international level it really isn't. The main enforcement is naming of shaming at states. So this means that the enforcement is not itself, uh, in, in itself a decisive uh, characteristic of international law to be meaningful to exist. It also means that the distinction between whether something is hard law or soft law, whether it's binding or whether it's not binding, legally binding or not legally binding, gets blurred. And it also, it finally means, I think, that if we want to look at international law as an effective way to regulate conduct whether of states or of other organizations, there is a need for a compliance pool from within. Because basically, whether it's binding or not, it's not so important. Whether it's enforced or not, it's not so important because it really doesn't get enforced. Um, so for this to, so we cannot rely on deterrence for whatever good deterrence is. If we talk about international human rights or human rights, sorry, <coughs> often deterrence and sanctions doesn't make much good because if somebody is, say, in an occupational health and safety accident, think of the Plaza collapse about three years ago, the people who lost their lives, you can you can punish somebody, who's not going to bring those people back to life. You can uh, you can also give um, <coughs> give the kids who lost their mothers a compensation, but it's not going to give them uh, their mother back. Right? So for these human rights issues, often even the deterrent or the, the sort of the remedial effect of the exposed approach doesn't really make a big difference. So there's a really big case for having like a compliance pool from within. And and for this, I found that I, and that just so sort of happens that. Um, Tom Frank wrote, wrote, wrote a very, very, interesting work on the process of international lawmaking to have this compliance pool from, in, from within our already 1990s. So we can, there were some sort of things in this that I think is interesting also in regard to how international law can help uh, uh, shape corporate conduct. So as also to have the compliance pool and to not cause harm because the harm really generally cannot be repaired. So fundamentally, to me, law is a science about identifying and institutionalizing laws of color. It goes back to religious norms, moral norms, philosophical norms in most societies, that then harden, and then eventually they become whatever so, sort of <coughs> of law that exists in that society, and then that sort of grows from the national to the international, sometimes regional level. Um, this then takes me on to this the business and human rights regime. I like to call it the business and human r- regime. I think that can maybe be contested, but at least I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a way of figuring it uh, that, that helps us understand what's been happening in the business and human rights field is different or is like a subset of the general development of international law, and especially international human rights law. Because the business and human rights regime explicitly addresses not just the duties of states, but also responsibilities of companies. Uh, and explicitly connects the two. Um, also, not just in, in, in regard to what they should do to do no harm for businesses to do no harm, but also in terms of revenue. And this is very unusual if we look at what international law normally does. Um, so this has been a bumpy road. Already in the 1970s, there was an effort, on, uh, uh, within the UN to develop a code of conduct for TNCs, and this became abandoned in the 90s due to a number of reasons. The sort of the north-south south, or the east-west conflict had changed to a north-south conflict that then changed to something else, and maybe just the people involved were not, they were go- going elsewhere and they were in society interests that also weren't aligned with this. Uh, but in 1976, the OECD came up with their first version of the go- Guiding Principles for multinational enterprises. And this tends to be a little bit overlooked. I think that already in 1976 we actually did get an instrument. It was very different from what it really is today, but it was an instrument in which <coughs> the OECD, sometimes referred to as the rich country um set out guidance for multinational enterprises in order for these enterprises to be respectful of um, the, um, the, the societies in which they were operating when they were operating outside their home states. <coughs> Then, in in, um, in 2000, the UN Global Compact was established based on a multi-stakeholder process involving companies and some civil society organisations, led by the um, the uh, the UN uh, Secretary General, um, with um, with um, different other people involved from the UN and different UN organisations. And this is, I think, we can debate whether. it's really something we can call a soft law instrument or not. Some of my colleagues who are organizational scholars refer to it as a soft law instrument. From my perspective as a lawyer, we would probably say it's soft, it's very, very soft, but there's no doubt that it's guiding. And interestingly, actually, these 10 principles of the UN Law Compact refer back to international law standards that are soft. And the tricky thing here, but the clever thing is that in referring to international soft law standards, like the Uni- universal Declaration of human rights, um, an ILO declaration from 1998 that actually spells out the four core labor rights of the UN, uh, and the, uh, the Rio declaration from uh, 1992, the UN Global Compact takes what could have been some of the opposition out uh, of a uh, potential corporate argument to say this is none of their business, this is state's business, because of because in international law, the hard more instruments. Explicitly are binding states. So, if you refer to something that's soft law, it's gui- guiding it rate, nobody's going to say it's binding. So, by not referring to something where companies might have said, but this is binding for states, this is none of our business, states, this is your business, but rather than referring to something that's guiding it for states, it could also be guiding for companies. It was a very clever way to get companies to think about these, uh, these standards as something that was relevant for them. To be guiding when they wanted to take responsibility of their impact on society. So basically the Global Compact is about doing no harm. The next thing was that a, um, a subcommission under this UN uh, Commission on Human Rights sat down to develop um, what became known as the draft UN norms on business and human rights. And this was a process that was developed by human rights experts as a normal UN human rights norm uh, making process is. It was also a process that progressed according to the way that the UN normally makes international law on human rights, which means working with states and working with civil society organizations. Civil society organizations are really important in human rights law because they often represent the victims. Often the victims of human rights violations are not able to go to to Geneva or to other uh, big organizations, institutions, or even to courts in their home countries to claim their rights or explain what happened. So civil society organisations play a really really important role in this regard. But what the process did do until quite late was involve companies. And so in this case, what was happening was actually that the, this UN subcommission uh, or the expert group uh, was wanted to develop um, norms for companies. Normally, if not when international law develops norms for states, states are obviously involved. States are the lawmakers in international law. So they are involved by default. Um, in this case they didn't involve companies on quite 8. And one of the results the results was that whereas quite a few companies thought it was would be great to have some guidance for their impact on human rights because they they were subject to all sorts of critique, media reports and we'll find it was very difficult for them to know what they were actually expected to do. But there were also some business organisations that that used this as an opportunity um, to fight back. Maybe some of the language definitely some of the language maybe also the message on what were these draft norms, were they supposed to be binding or not, and what was the time frame for something to be binding. There was a reference to, this to something, to a, a treaty, which is binding international law. And I would imagine that to many companies, it would not be clear that often treaty making as international law takes decades. So they probably thought this was going to be something that would be pulled up sort of above their heads without their say, their having a say. And then it comes down to CEOs, like everyone else, just being human individuals and common human nature. If you tell somebody exactly what they have to do, and is something that's important for them, we don't involve them. Just like with kids, right? If we want our kids to do something that we we don't want them to just do it because they have to be, because they actually understand it's meaningful for them, we involve them, we, we, sh- we share arguments with them, we give them a sec. So CEOs are just like that, and if you don't use that process, often, whether it's CEOs or others, they will pull. And That's what happened here. And some many of these CEOs and oh, not many, but some international organisa- or international business organizations that lobbied the states present in the UN Human Rights Commission, and eventually the Commission rejected these draft UN notes. At the same time, more or less, the EU had launched this multi-stakeholder forum on CSR, which was an, an effort, a very ambitious idea on the part of the EU Commission to develop like what could have been maybe an EU advanced version of the global. And the EU Commission seemed to have, idea, have an idea that European companies were going to be very supportive of this, that they were really going to go along and see the idea of developing a European Code of Conduct for multinationals operating overseas as a wonderful opportunity to show what the EU really wants to do and how good European companies are on corporate social responsibility. But here too, companies didn't like the idea. So they used this multi-stakeholder forum and this the, the, the multi-stakeholder engagement process to really undercut these ambitions, so that basically nothing came out of it. And they, what they did was they kept telling governments, hey, you're talking about human rights, and you're talking about public policy objectives, but these are government's business. That's not our business. So if you governments or commission, if you have a problem with the way that we behave, you just make laws. And of course, as good businesses, we observe the law. So you just make a law we'll observe the law, knowing very well that the European uh, governments were not going to agree on this because there are too many differences between them. So nothing came of that. Then at the same time, more or less, what happened in, uh, was that the UN Human Rights Commission sort of had second thoughts and thought, well, maybe it wasn't such a bad idea to have some sort of guidance on business responsibilities for human rights because unless businesses sort of would get on board, it would be really difficult for the UN to be seen to deliver on its general objectives. The UN was probably already facing a bit of a legitimacy crisis. When the UN was established in 1945, nobody had the idea that companies would be as powerful as they are today, or became during the, the, year, the latter half of the 20th century. And also because the UN is an international organization it was set up under the state, centrist, um, approach, state-centric approach of international law. So basically companies had no role. It meant also they had no responsibility. They had no duties. But they were, have been given a lot of uh, rights, international economic rights in the meantime. And there was... Uh, so so the, well, these sort of second thoughts met, led then the Commission to propose to the, um, the, uh, the UN Secretary General to establish um, a, a special um, mandate, a special um, sort of procedure on the, what the... In general, human rights language is called special uh, procedures under the UN. A position as a special representative on business and human rights, and it just so happens that Professor John Ruggie was asked to assume that mandate. So when I started here, a lot of the work that I've actually been—that is my sort of, kind of the empirical basis for what I've been looking at over the past uh, many years—is actually thanks to um, John Ruggie and his uh, his various teams for the in, in this in this process, as well as also for the Global Compact, actually. But (coughs) what this led to then um, was so this mandate led to um, uh, to first of all this um, policy document called the UN Framework, um, which became um, uh, sort of in in also a bit of unusual language by the Human Rights Council that has uh, become in the meantime universally or sort of um, unanimously um, welcomed, which means that it was a big change here from the rejection of the draft UN rules to the welcoming of the UN framework. Now with my sort of interest in what is, what is happening here? Why is it that some efforts are, are successful and others are not? And what are these driving forces? Because obviously things happen also from here to the next to the next, but there seem to be something else <coughs> to say. And then the next thing was that I was sort of is that, again, this EU CSR lines was adapted and adopted, and that's where the EU Commission explicitly used to sort of language-addressing companies, which, when I look at some of the work leading to the UN framework, especially during the later years of the flat, uh, first three-year process, there were some arguments um, in some of the many presentations that were made to different groups uh, of... of uh, of, of the audiences, <coughs> uh, and also many of the new written reports that really said the same thing, but said it in very different ways, depending on what the audience was. Um, after the UN framework became adopted, then there was a second, uh, the Secretary General of the UN Human Rights uh, Council adopted a second um, a mandate that asked for an operas- operationalization of the UN framework into what we now know as the UN Guiding Principles. The difference between the UN framework and the guiding principles, when I explain this to my students, is that the UN framework is actually like an academic article, high-level academic article, made through really detailed academic study. It's written in a different way, has a different format than an academic article or an other academic publication, but it's really a very sort of um, uh, serious academic work that can be used also I think should be used more for academic referencing, same when we talk about business rights. It's also a very, very complex document. It's a lot of of substance in very few pages. Whereas the UN Guiding Principles is much more like a manual approach unfolding to governments, to businesses, um, what are their duties and responsibilities in regard to these three pillars of the state duty to protect, the corporate responsibility to respect and then for both access, providing access to remedy that were developed with the UN uh, framework and accepted by the UN Human Rights um, Council. Um, The guiding principles, among other things, um, also elaborate something called the risk-based due diligence approach or the human rights due diligence approach, which was then taken up in 2011 by um, the OECD, the the, the most recent revision of the OECD guidelines, which introduced a human rights chapter in line with the guiding principles, and also this risk-based due diligence and applied it not just, not just to human rights, but actually across the board for most of the, the, the uh, CSR issues covered by the OECD um, guidelines. Um, so already the guiding principles were already then having an impact. The fact that they got adopted were e- explicating the UN framework's um, three pillars we're now have starting to have an impact uh, on other um, international, transnational business governance instruments. So the OSCE guidelines is one. The second important, I think, or interesting thing here is that the EU's third communication on CSR. So after the 2002 one, after the 2006 one, those was a 2011 one, but it explicitly changes the definition of CSR. So see, according to the EU, now CSR is no longer voluntary. And the EU did that because the EU had been supporting these processes with the UN very carefully. So, from the policy perspective, the EU had endorsed the UN guiding principles, which make this explicit connection in the framework. Explicit connection between the state duty to protect individuals against third-party uh, third-party violations, including violations by, by businesses, and the corporate responsibility to respect, and also setting up that the corporate responsibility to respect contains both the obligation to comply with national law and the responsibility to self-regulate when national law doesn't meet the status of international law. So the EU more or less had to change the definition, could no longer say that CSR is voluntary. But this has actually been important because it meant that the EU in 2014 was able to adopt mandatory non-financial regulation reporting uh, as a requirement. Because the EU used to, set, used to say, CSR, anything to do with CSR, and corporate impact on society um, is voluntary. So if they had insisted on that, we wouldn't have been able to require mandatory reporting on CSR. But now they said it's no longer voluntary, so we can adopt, end up finding uh, requirements on companies. Also apply this due diligence process as something corporations have to report on. In the meantime, we also have going back to much more conventional international law process launched in 2014. Um, under the, um, the UN to develop um, a treaty on business and human rights uh, which recently de- uh, resulted in a, a, a very first version of a, a draft of a treaty referred to as a, a zero draft. Um, uh, I am not an expert on this um, but to me it looks like it's a more conventional international rulemaking making process than all of these other efforts which have really been unusual in that they have been explicitly tried to see how to work actively with influencing corporate conduct through different types of guidance instrument rather than working through very conventional institutional approaches to what the law is and what state obligations are. Um, And and that's something I'm going to say more of. Um, It's interesting to note also that when the Sustainable Development Goals were adopted in 2015, they also include an explicit reference um, to the UN guiding Principles. So, as the, again, I often say to my students, the SDG is about do good, do more good, and the UNDP is about do no harm. So, this is really saying do more good, but do no harm. So, um, what I've been doing in, 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 in my work has been looking for trends and wordings and results, and looking at some of this the way that, that, that analysis of words and arguments could help explain. Uh, with these various processes, what, let, what actually was, what processes were effective in developing the normative results or delivering the normative re- results that they were intended to have? And what can we, how can we use that insight on words, the arguments that you, that you use, the sort of the way that you maybe smartly or intelligently structure them according to whoever your audience is, to understand more about also how sustainability norms on, on human rights, but it could be on other aspects also, can be internalized within companies because that's basically what we want. Again, from, at least my take is that because because um, when corporations cause harmful effects on society, very often these cannot be remedied. Or even if they can be remedied, it's not preferable, that they, 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 they have never occurred. So remedy is really important. We cannot be without remedy, but it's preferable that we have no need for remedy. So it's interesting to see how I think it's interesting to think about how we can sort of understand how these processes work, in order to also see how we can use arguments um, uh, from outside of a company to help the company stimulate its own self-regulation to work better, to be more, um, to work better with its, its, its impact on society, and address this. Um, So the theoretical frameworks that I've been using, and this again goes back to this very um, interdisciplinary context that I work with, is um, different aspects of communication theory. One, looking at the relation between the transmitter, so who says something and the message and the code and and how it addresses the recipient and, and then how it creates a reaction. So saying that different stages in communication and you really want the reaction, right? But the reaction is contingent on the other things as well. And then to, to help more explain that, I found that this um, theory back in the 70s, or sorry, 80s, on legal autopoiesis and system theory, um, uh, which takes a very different approach to what is law, how does law, law work uh, from institutional theory, uh, because it really considers how, in communication, regulators, policymakers, or really everyone else, can activate the rationality of the audience in order to generate change. If they don't activate the natural rationality, the core logic of the audience, then they're not going to have the results that they want. Then they're just going to have a sort of parallel communication that doesn't really generate results. And then finally, a, th- a second aspect of communication theory, looking at how once you've you got the organization, say companies, uh, to realize that, say in the case of business and human rights, that it actually is important for them to, um, to open up their minds to these external expectations because if they don't, then they can, it's likely that either they're going to suffer reputational damage or maybe regulators are going to make um, much more directive uh, legal binding requirements on companies because there's no way that society national societies and national countries or the international society, can um, accept in the long run that some actors in society can act sort of with impu- with, without any sort of constraints on in terms of the ab- adverse impact. So if you don't self-regulate, we're go- you're going to be regulated. So that's the first part of the argument. And then once once their minds are open to that, so that's like you telling them that if you want to preserve your economic freedom of, of um, your economic freedom, to so basically. Make money and make profits, then you've actually got to try to work actively with human rights. You never thought human rights was something for you, you used to think with state that businesses, but you need to think about human rights because um, that's a change, that's a, steep, a destabilizing of, uh, uh, part, uh, and that will help you stabilize your interest in preserving your economic freedom and being able to keep making a profit. Um, so, the first aspect of this communication theory, this is um, uh, sort of basically just to show how, if you read it, we read from the left to the right, that, that we have somebody saying something, there's a message, and the message is coded. If we, so, when we talk, like right now I'm talking in English, if I talk to my son, I speak in Danish, right? uh, but if I would be talking to my I talk to my son, who's 25 now, I speak to him in a different way, different code, because it's grown up, than when he was five. Basically, if you know him, if I want him to do the same thing, like tidy up, or if he wants to, to have, yeah, whatever. Um, so, so the code is important also for what actually comes out of the message. And so the code in the message is what establishes the contact to the recipient. And if the code is effective in establishing the right contact, then you will see the reaction. But if the code is not effective um, in doing that, then you will not have the reaction. And this is, it didn't came, come up very easy, very well, so I think I'll just leave and go back to the next thing. But this is, this is just with some examples, so the same thing with some examples from some of these empirical studies. So the second thing was this idea of system thinking, the legal autopoiesis. Basically, what, uh, what autopoiesis is, is something that <coughs> social scientists have taken from biology and the idea... That um, any system, like the body, for example, is comprised of several subsystems. So the body has the blood system and the lymphoid system, and we have different other uh, systems in the body. Um, and, and so, just like a virus will affect the body and activate the <coughs> body to change so that it. It, it sort of embr- it eventually embraces the, uh, the, the virus, but changes so that the next time we meet that virus, we will not be affected by it. In, in a similar way, uh, social systems can, uh, um, and, and subsystems of society can react to society. So in, in, in social systems, when we talk about social systems, we have many different systems. There's a health system, there's a science system, um, there's the media system and uh, legal, economic, and political systems. And all of these work around a binary code. So, for the health system, for, for example, very, very whether something is healthy or, un- not, or unhealthy, anything that, re- that needs to activate the logic and the access within the health system. Has to be communicated in that code. If you go and want to have an appointment with your doctor, and you tell him that you want to have a conversation about a recent news article, he's going to say that you know that's not for me. But we can talk about it if we meet in the park on the weekend. Um, so, so for the same thing also, if you want companies to take something seriously, it has to somehow activate their logic of profit or non-profit. And this is not profit in a bad sense, simply because if a company doesn't make a profit. It will go out of business. So it can no longer do harm, but it can also no longer do good. So basically managers will be thinking about this profit and non-profit and maybe associate and also associative aspects. So for example, risk management, managing risks of losses to their profit. And the legal system will generally be thinking about so whether something is legal, or illegal, mandatory, voluntary. And the political system will basically be thinking about power. And when we talk about the political system, it's not just politicians, it's also the executive implementing political decisions, and it's also like civil society organizations, because civil society organizations basically are so dependent on their constituencies, seeing them as effective in delivering on the policies that they have. Because if, 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 like for example, Greenpeace doesn't see, isn't seem to be effective in delivering, if Greenpeace will not get the members that they want. They will not be paying the fees. If Amnesty International is not seen as being defec- effective in delivering on its on its arguments and policies, then uh, the people who would like to support Amnesty, they will maybe go. They will not be. They will. They will go somewhere else with their members and membership fees. So, so for for NGOs, this is really an important aspect as well. And the idea of autopoiesis is that in order, because each of these systems are basically closed, but they're also open to the environment. So, if an argument is made in a way that activates the logic, then the system will open itself to the, to the argument on the outside. But if the argument doesn't activate that, that logic, then the system will say, This is just a whole lot of nothing that's just taking, wanting to take our attention from our real, uh, real, real important business. So, if the legal system insists on companies. Um, complying with the laws or, say, um, developing non-financial reports as a matter of legal requirements, just that, without any explanation of why it could actually benefit the business. Then they would say, oh, it's just another administrative burden. Now, we have to hire somebody to do these reports. Okay, we'll do that, we'll get the report made, and then we'll get on with making business. But if the argument, if if the regulator or the policymaker says, Making a non-financial report is going to be really good for your business because you can use this, you can engage actively with stakeholders as part of the process and you can use this as like free advice, free consultancy. You get to talk to the civil society organizations before they actually criticize you, before they hurt your, your reputation. You can talk to different customers, you can get them on this, the policy makers, you can get an understanding of what society wants of you and you can we can you can use this to develop your the way that you work as a company. Uh, and then it will make sense to them. They can see it as risk management. They can, and they will say, "Hey, okay, this is something good. This makes sense, it makes business. Let's do it." Um, so basically, what what this system theory uh, approach does is it gives us a very different view on 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 the the, uh, the different say aspects of society, the way that the law works, or law works, the way that economic uh, economic organizations, companies work, the way that politics work, as opposed to the institutional theories that tend to think very much about law, like courts and statutes and treaties and contracts, uh, and and, and, and uh, also company conduct is sort of based more on coercion or, or isomorphism than actual thinking reflected within the, uh, the organization. So the second part of this communication theory, and then when I explain this, I always think about this movie um, that I was taken by my parents to see when I was a little kid. And I didn't understand it at the time, but some of you may uh, have seen it or even read the book uh, by Giuseppe Tomasi di Labdusa, it's called the, uh, The Leopard. It was made into a Visconti movie by Visconti in 1993, 1963. It is about the Sicilian prince, and um, during the time when when Italy was really in turmoil in the 18th century, and everything was changing, all this prince dance with being turn, turned into um, the state of um, of Italy, and he says this thing, and my my stepdad always used to quote it, and I think that's why I re- remember it so much. Everything must be changed in order to remain as it was. And basically, that's the key message of the, sta- the combination between the stab- stabilizing and the destabilizing arguments. So if we look at some examples here, some of the things that I noticed in some of the, um, in the, this vast body of, of, of data that I had, uh, documents. Uh, for example, the UN uh, framework and the UN guiding principles says business enterprises are specialized organizations of society. So, this is a way of recognizing for business, we are not going to expect that you all of a sudden act as states. No, you are specialized organs of society. Rest assured, CEOs and other managers, we are not going to expect you to take over the role of states. Okay? Now they are more quiet. We will still be able to make make profits and we can we can protect ourselves against risk. Okay, so what do we need to do to do to, to get there? Or talking about the risk based due diligence. Risk due diligence, is risk, risk management, is already well known to corporate lawyers and, and, and accountants. That's what they do. That's really their that, that, that trade. Um, but they do it as a process to identify risk to the company caused by society. But talking about due diligence, they will say, okay, this makes sense. Corporate lawyers might all otherwise have <coughs> arguing yeah. that human rights has nothing to do with, uh, with companies because human rights are state, organ- state obligations. Now they think about due diligence, something they already do, but hey, this is a different process. You have to work in, you have to turn it 180 degrees around, you have to think of identifying risks caused by the company to society. But you've got their ear and their attention. Or the argument that Kofi Annan made at the Davos summit when he introduced what became uh, the Global Compact, that in order to retain the economic freedom of enterprise, companies, businesses need to understand and, and, and manage their impacts on human rights and other and the environment and labour rights. Right? So basically the idea here is um, that once the regulator or this process gets the ear of the organisation by activating their internal logic and saying this is really about surviving, about staying what the way you want. Uh, by by using arguments that are not based in the realm rationality, but based in the in in, in based in the um, the rationality of uh, the audience. So we go back to this one, basically on the audience not the audience. Then they can use that to make smart arguments that get make the case for the change. So, if we want to look at whether how, how this can be used, and I know that time is running, so I'll be quick. Just a couple of examples on mandatory um, non-financial reporting. Something that's um, that's been introduced by a number of countries, also by the U.S. In regards to, for example, conflict minerals, and minerals and there can be conflict minerals going into our smartphones or computers, laptops, um, whatever. Denmark. Uh, my country in 2008 introduced mandatory CSR reporting for what they refer to as large companies. And in a small country, we've got only five million people. So you can imagine that if they say that the 1,100 largest companies had to uh, make these reports, it's actually also a lot of, a lot of not very large companies. Um, so they were required to report on CSR defined or, uh, on their policies, implementation and results. And CSR was defined, and this was not a coincidence in accordance with the UN Global Compact four issue areas, so human rights, labor rights, environment, and anti-corruption, and climate change. And this was for two reasons. Climate change, because Denmark was looking to host the COP15, uh, which ended in more or less disaster, but they didn't know that at the time. They thought that it was just another good opportunity to market Denmark for being sustainability-oriented. Um and then also because the because the Danish government was supporting the global compact, so the Danish government wanted more companies to become members of the Global compact, the Danish report could double as a global compact report also as a the, 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 the Danish companies' global compact reports could double as the Danish reports so they wouldn't need to make two reports um but if we look at the at the legislative history it's very clear that the government really wanted companies to engage in this process as a way to learn about the impact of society to learn about expectations so that they could integrate them and address them but the way it ended up being communicated didn't say that very clear, very clearly so for, for organizational scholars looking at what co- what uh, companies actually did report up, or for the media who read those reports they ended up saying hey companies are not doing what they should what they should they're not reporting on what they should. So they, there was pressure on the minister then to change the focus from the learning to more like a, simply a reporting, just a transparency exercise without the focus on reporting as a process to work with stakeholders to understand what company, how, how companies can become more sustainable in their actions. And the EU non-financial reporting directive, which was more or less um, initiated um, by Denmark and then through a lot of EU politics also became some, something else, is I think a very interesting example of what happens with, when, when, when lawyers um, start to make regulation and are very afraid of stepping into the politics. So if you, and, and really thinking about what, what is this really about? Because if we look at the preamble, which is a policy part, it's very clear that this non-financial reporting is also intended to help companies become more aware of sustainability needs in society and and what they're expected to do. But then if we look at the operative articles, this is really um, a transition back to the command and control approach, which was what the autopoetic take on law actually wanted to be um, an alternative to. So there is uh, the, the EU... Uh, is now requiring large companies to report in a manner that that mainly focuses on providing information to society, which can be really good. And it's not that society cannot hold companies to account on the basis of those society, uh, to account on the basis of those reports. Obviously, can. But I think it's worth asking um, whether the way that the, the the way that the reporting obligation has been structured is the most effective one in getting companies to use the process to also um, drive internal change. And there, I think it's worth thinking about whether there is a risk that by focusing so much on information directed to the outside rather than to go into and help spur internal any organizational change, that the report becomes reflective, just a mirror of what the company thinks that society wants or what society wants, but just mirroring or actually reflective, simulating internal organization within the company. So where does all this take us? Well, I think basically to me, what's at stake is shaping sustainable conduct because there is this need to to have a process um, that delivers change within organizations based on the process not to rely, because we cannot rely on expert sanctions. They're simply not going to repair the damage that has been done. There's too big a risk. That, that, that harm occurs. Um, that even if it can be remedied, will have caused other 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 side effects. Um, so there is something here, I think, on the power words and arguments. Um, next, also to what, what some um, refer to as a smart regulation, sort of an emergent theoretical aspect. Um, the systems combining the systems and communication aspect. But there is definitely also also a point in using the more institutional approaches. Looking at isomorphism, if you can get co- some companies, the leading companies, the the companies who understand that that's, uh, a sustainability su- uh, um, and actually in accordance with uh, global and national and local sustainability needs is important, if you can get them to change, then maybe you will see others follow. So there's definitely a point in that also. Um, but I think it's worth um, considering this sort of the regulatory process and how how regulatory processes and these aspects can be made to work in a smart manner. Because um, just in the 20 years that I've been working with this, I've seen sustainability concerns keep developing in a way that goes beyond our When I started working with this, everyone was talking about labor rights. 10 years later, everyone was talking about climate change. But then in the 90s, people were not connecting climate change to sustainability, and corporate sustainability, right? So what's going to mean the next thing? I would not be surprised that once we run out of resources in this planet, we'll start looking for resources elsewhere and then we can have real, real bad fight where nobody's going to want to regulate it. So it could be really good to think about these things in advance and think about how using the process and the words and the arguments, different organizations can be helped to think about their activities in a way that stimulate organizational change in time uh, for conflicts not to occur. Thank you very much
1: we have time for a few questions I'll, I'll let you handle them
3: yourself yeah. Yeah. I'll start, thank you very much Karen That's a very interesting talk and the idea of framing these issues and the use of language and how you play to um, somebody's of internal codes and what, what they ascribe meaning to is well taken. I wonder, stepping back a little bit and thinking about um, international law and the fact that it does seem in many cases to be unenforceable, um, and we live in an era right now in certainly domestic U.S. politics where um, language, social norms have kind of deteriorated, um, and we kind of keep lowering the standard of behavior and discourse in this country. Uh, and I wonder what impact, if any, you might be seeing or could project for the enforcement of international norms and international law uh, in the work that you do. Um, so let, let me just get
2: this right. You're talking, with, the, the question is really about international law and enforcement of international law.
3: Uh, yes, and sort of the, the fact that um, in society right now, at least in U.S. society, the, the level of discourse, of public discourse, is becoming uh, is becoming debased uh, yeah. to some extent. And yeah. you, you question, you know, we can't even agree on what the facts are and fake news and uh, kind of a, um, the frequency of, of bluff and bluster uh, is much more common than sort of the use of diplomacy and seeking win-win situations. Uh, and I just kind of wonder how, if how, how or if at all this this sort of trend, societal trend, may filter into some of what you've been talking about now?
2: Yeah. So you know, this is a really really difficult question because it makes me think. You now, if if you can if you can be really really clever about your argument, maybe you can get really far without necessarily. Um, well. Um, so, so that's also maybe why I, I said in the beginning that were pros and cons to that, right? Um, because just to go back to this example of, of what the EU did, and, or the EU businesses did with the, uh, during the multi reform, forum, actually the EU, some EU businesses also uh, succeeded in very much limiting the um, application of the EU's non-financial reporting directive because they are still, very good at using these um, system-specific arguments in a way that appeals very carefully and and, and smartly to to regulate it. So so I think there is a case for um, all actors to understand about these things, but I think there is as much a case for, say, scientific uh, institutions, universities, to, to to educate maybe also society and, and different actors in this, the, the, how you can make smart arguments. Because there are some organizations, and maybe some individuals maybe have a more natural um, sense of this, and others maybe don't. Right? Some, what I've seen also, like some civil society organizations um, are not always very effective actually in getting uh, the result that they want. For example, in the business and human rights uh, stage, because they've been communicating very much on their own logic. Whereas some of the others, again going back to the business organizations, have been better at sort of thwarting their arguments by speaking into their rationality. I think that's the best answer I can give to this because I also think that the U.S. political situation is really complex and not something that I'm... Uh, seeing it from the outside, I think it's different from seeing it from the inside. And I don't know what international law would be doing with this.
3: So I'm, I'm wondering if you're seeing this as a, as a kind of manual for manipulating the uh, political process by um, enrolling the, the stakeholders in the smartest way possible so that you can achieve what you want, um, or whether you're seeing this as a kind of educational process of how all stakeholders ought to behave with each other.
2: Well, I think it had to be both, like, and, and there's de- definitely the danger that it can be used for man- manipulation. Right? There is a big danger also of, um, of capture of a process. I think um, from my work I've seen several examples of, of organisations actually being able to capture the process because they simply understood it better. And that, that's why I think there is also the educational of, um, of the, the need for education. Um, because I think this is something that goes on in society. I think it goes on in a lot of other contexts as well. Um, uh, and so I, I think there is a really big need for educational institutions to to, to develop more knowledge and share more knowledge um, that can help both those who make all arguments but also those who are subject to arguments understanding also the risk of ma- manipulation. I think... Um, I know that this... This can be done, used for manip- manipulatory purposes, but it already is, right? The, so, so in the more we can understand if we are subject to manipulation, to understand how somebody is actually going to trying to manipulate us by speaking into our logic in a way that we should be able to resist, the more we can also resist. Right? So, so there are, there are different aspects to this. Thank you for your presentation. Thinking about when you have the slide
0: up showing sort of what the dominant logic is for corporations you say making a profit versus not a profit. I think what I learned, I've come from this field, um, is that when you think about corporations, they're not a monolith. They're made up of individual people. These people don't come to work every day thinking, I'm here to make a profit. They're coming in with advancing their own values. They're there to advance their own careers, perform whatever function they're playing inside that company. I think there's a level of research that come down a level off where you're looking. I think what you'll see is that the most effective people in this field are the ones that are most successful at understanding individuals. So not necessarily profit, non-profit, but understanding what is motivating that person. First, who has the power to make the decision that can make the change I want to see, and then what motivates them, and then align your message specifically to their value system and what they're trying to achieve inside their organization. And that's how I think most change in sustainability happens more at a tactical level. So I'd encourage maybe some deeper research into how that level of communication
2: works. I think that's that's a very, very important point. Thanks for making that. Um, and I certainly recognize that, um, that this, uh, the, the profit-non-profit logic is, is 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 not on what's <coughs> first on first uh, uh, on a lot of people's minds who go to, to work on companies, as you're saying. Um, I've had a couple of students who've been um, doing a thesis on on how um, work on corporate social responsibility can get sort of activated and effective uh, within companies, um, and um, they have actually found that, yeah, you know, if you work in the say the CSR department, then then your, your your motivation and your logic will probably be very different from the profit non-profit. But in order to actually get the message through, especially if you're not in a company where the CEO is, and, and the top management itself has endorsed the agenda and driven it. So now, many, many companies, especially now with this non-financial reporting going around, and uh, uh, it doesn't come from the top. It has to come somewhere from the bottom. And what they found was that in order to get it to, to be accepted when it, when, it, when it comes from the bottom, Eventually, it somehow ends up being the profit non profit argument. So, it's again about saying this is not basically about profit non profit, but it has an impact on the way, on the, profit, the potential profit of the company or the potential losses, or for example, the resources that a company will need to invest in addressing um, uh, rep- rep- reputational damage. Or um, the um, the losses that the company will make through maybe also strikes uh, uh, or contractual issues with its suppliers because there has been something in there that's somehow related to this social uh, responsibility. Um, so it's part of the argument that will sell the, uh, the course. And I, I certainly re- recognize that it's not all about profit, non-profit, but somehow the argument can can drive the change. And I also want to, to, to emphasize that I'm not saying that everything should be done from the profit-non-profit logic. Or, and also, but what I'm trying to say is that with whatever type of functional system we are trying to, um, to, to to get some change going, if we can see it from that perspective, it's just easier. Again, I think going back to thinking how we raise kids is instructive.
1: Karen, I think... Uh, is, it, is it a quick question? Uh, hopefully,
3: because <laughs> <laughs> we're running out of time. Just uh, very quickly, uh, Steve Mnuchin just announced he's not going to the Saudi summit, and the Minister of in France said so the same this morning. How do you see CSR evolving for companies that have to do business with countries like Saudi and China and are operating from the U.S.? And are we at risk of a bifurcated two-tier system emerging where some companies are saying, we're just going to go there and do business and love it? And, you know, I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you see this evolving? Because, you know, the, the murder of a journalist and a consulate is, is a pretty big deal. And so uh, wh- where do you see all this going?
2: Oh, I think <laughs> that's not a question I can give a quick answer to. It's also really, I think, a bit beyond my but, expertise. But, but what I do know is... Then actually, if we look at China, I don't know much about Saudi Arabia, but China, um, in regard to the textile sector, in regard to mining, minerals, and investments, has been actually uh, actively pursuing an agenda that goes very much parallel to what the UN guiding principles are doing and uh, and are saying in the OECD guiding principles. And there can be all sorts of reasons for that. but, uh, uh, but, uh, But I think one of the points is that maybe because... The standing that China, as a state, wants to have in the global society, um, s- China is not necessarily a country where you will find those sorts of double standards. In those areas, maybe, maybe in others. But I think again, these, these, these things are really, really complicated, and complex. So, you know, maybe what goes for one sector and one company doesn't go for the other.
3: Thank you. Well, thanks very much. Thank you.